Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My name is Preston Sprinkle, and in this show, we are going to address the, well, several of the questions that you guys sent in. Uh, as most of you know, my Patreon supporters are the ones who vote on the questions that you send in. So they are the ones who pick these. You guys sent in a lot of really good questions, but my Patreon supporters are the ones who decided which ones they wanted me to address. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, you can go to Patreon dot com forward slash theology in the raw also uh for those of you who are listening to the show this is also a youtube show okay so um i am here in my studio i.e my basement with poor lighting and okay sound and i am recording this uh this this podcast on video as well it's going to be up on my youtube channel and uh, if, if it's not up already, it's kind of weird talking about something that's going to happen in the future at some point, not knowing exactly when that's going to happen or who's listening to this first. So if you are listening to the show and you want to watch me <laughs> sit in my basement and answer your questions, you are free to do so. Go to my YouTube channel, uh, Press and Sprinkle, and uh, you will find this video. If you are watching this video on YouTube and you want to listen to it, then you can go to my podcast, Theology in the Raw, through iTunes or other uh, platforms where podcasts are listened to. So there we are. I'm going to jump in and address your questions. The first one that is about nonviolence and the Psalms. Uh, this questioner says, how does one who believes in nonviolence deal with the very violent themes in the Psalms? Uh, this person goes on to say, as a Christian who believes the Bible teaches nonviolence, how do we use the Psalms that have heavy war themes and references in devotional time or application to our lives. You go on to say, I'm a big fan of Fight, uh, the book I wrote on, on nonviolence. And you totally agree with my perspective on nonviolence, but occasionally you come across some brutal lines in the Psalms like, silence my enemies, destroy my foes, Psalm 143.12, or destroy those who look at this world for their reward, Psalm 17.14. And there's several other violent psalms that I'm sure if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you've come across these verses. I remember talking to my kids about, um, I was reading uh, Psalm 139 to my kids, which is a, a beautiful psalm about God knitting our inward parts and forming us in, in our mother's womb. And it's a really endearing, intimate psalm. But then there's a line that just jumps out of nowhere about, you know, God, please dash the kids of my enemies up against the rocks. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? So this, the psalms are very devotional. They're very uh, heartwarming in, in many places, but they're also very violent. So what do we do with the violence in the psalms? Um, well, a couple things. Number one, as I talked about in my book, Fight, um, I, I do believe there are ethical trajectories in Scripture, meaning some things are permitted in the Old Testament and prohibited in the New, or vice versa. Some things are permitted in the Old Testament and prohibited in the New Testament. Not everything. I mean, some things are prohibited in the Old and prohibited in the New, and some things are permitted and permitted and so on and so forth. So it's not, it's not that everything is on an ethical trajectory, trajectory, but I do believe that with regard to violence, we do have violence endorsed, um, sometimes even commanded in the Old Testament. And I've, you know, I know various Christian thinkers and writers who try to say it wasn't God commanding the violence, it was the Old Testament Israelites that misunderstood God's command. I don't take that approach. I think it's uh, I think it presents other hermeneutical and in interpretive problems. 
Um, so I do take the approach that I do believe God met Israel where they were at, and he sanctioned violence. He tolerated violence. In fact, in some cases, he even commanded violence, but that was not his, a, re- a revelation of his perfect will. Just like when he said, uh, don't eat catfish, I don't think that was a revelation of his perfect will. When he said, you know, when he commanded a man with two wives to make sure you don't play favorites with the son of the wife that you love the most, I don't think that's a revelation of God's perfect will. I think God would rather have people not to have uh, two wives, but he met them where they were at. He met Israel where they were at to, to slowly bring them to where he wanted them to be. Okay, so that, that's what I mean by ethical trajectory. So, and if you've read my book, this questioner has read my book, and so you know uh, how I explain these ethical trajectories. So, so when I go, go to the Psalms, I mean, the Psalms are right smack dab in the middle of that trajectory. I do believe that the Psalms are written from a perspective of an old covenant view of violence where it was permitted under certain cir- circumstances, sometimes even, even commanded. So I read the Psalms through the lens of the cross. I read the entire Old Testament through the lens of the cross, that there may be certain things in the Old Testament that was uh, good and, and holy for Israel in that time, but doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that reflects a Christian or Christocentric, Christocentric ethic. Also, I mean, the, the, Psalms, the Psalms are interesting because they capture not just characteristics about God and his ways in the world, but they also capture our sometimes imperfect or very human response to God. So just because the, the Psalms capture a, a way in which um, people are responding to God, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is sort of sanitizing or endorsing that kind of response or is saying that's how people should respond, respond to God at all times of all places. The Psalms simply capture a very raw, very human, very real response to God. And so, I mean, in, in some ways, it, 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 it's, it, it's true in the sense that it captures a truthfulness about a human response to God, but doesn't mean it's necessarily, necessarily God's intended way in which we should respond to God. So just because you have a psalmist, for instance, crying out, God, destroy their enemies and dash their children up against the rocks, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that comes directly from God. Rather, that is divinely in a, a divinely inspired um, a piece of literature, the Psalms, that capture a human response to God. So those are two things. Number one, understand the genre of the Psalms and that it's a bit, a bit more messy than maybe other parts of the scripture. And also the Psalms are still part of this ethical trajectory leading to the perfect revelation of God's will in, in the New Testament. Next question, how to talk to a youth group member who is gay affirming? You say that, uh, you go on to explain, how do you broach this subject? with a student in the youth group who is same-sex attracted and is pursuing those attractions. So quick pause. This questioner is coming, obviously, from a perspective that same-sex sexual relationships are not God's will, not God's intention, okay? So somebody who holds to an affirming theology is going to is going to respond to this question very differently than, than I would. Um, and it's quite, in a sense, I mean, this this questioner is coming from a perspective that is shared by me. So we're having kind of a, an in-house uh, discussion here. So if, if you're not of this theological persuasion, then this answer is going to perhaps not make much sense because you're coming from a different point of view. You go on to say, this is a student 
who has been part of our youth group for a couple of years, has joined us on missions trips, etc. He's been fairly open with this small group about his attractions. He has no problem sharing about a certain crush that he has on another boy. You say he genuinely does believe in Jesus, I think, you <laughs> have in parentheses, um, but my guess is that he's never taken the time to evaluate the biblical view of marriage, sexuality, etc., and uh, given the way he feels about um, his own sexuality. As time goes on, he's gotten even more and more comfortable about sharing about his sexuality in small group, which on the one hand, I'm grateful for, you say, because it shows that his comfort level has grown. But on the other hand, I feel that I need to broach the subject with him theologically, simply as a desire to help him on the pathway of discipleship. I'm just not sure how. So my response, I, so first of all, let me just give a massive caveat, and I, I do this quite a bit with these, with these particular kind of r- relational questions. Um, I, I have a, a hard time giving specific, concrete, relational advice from a distance. I don't know this person. I, I, I mean, I don't know the questioner asking this question. Uh, I don't know the leaders. I don't know the nature of the church. I don't know the ecclesiology, the, 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 the views even of the, of the church as a whole. So it's hard for me to give really kind of A to Z, here's what you should do, not knowing so many relational particulars that I would need to know to give actual like sound pastoral advice. So my advice is going to be at a 30,000 foot level. Um, I would ask a few questions before I even get, give any advice. I would want to know what's, what's, what's your sort of philosophy of ministry in your youth group? What's your ecclesiology? Is it, is it more of a, a missional focused like you just want to get as many teens in a room so that you can share Jesus with them. Like you're just you're trying to just preach Jesus to people that probably don't know Jesus. Um, or is it more discipleship focused? Like you're getting teenagers who are actually committed to Jesus, or at least they, they say they want to follow Jesus. Like it's they, they've already made that commitment. Sure, there may be some unbelievers there, but your focus is more on discipleship. I, I would need to know kind of your philosophy here. Is it, is it more missional? Is it more discipleship focused? Or is it kind of a both and? I mean, I, I would kind of hope it would be somewhere of a, of a both and. Um, uh, if, it's, if it's so far on the missional side, I'm going to say that's awesome preach Jesus, uh, what happens when they make that confession? And, and are they getting a full, true picture of who Jesus is? Um, and if it's heavy on the discipleship side, I would say, well, you know that there's going to be probably many youth that are going to come and they're, they're going to bring their friends and, and you know, boys from school are going to be chasing the cute girls in your youth group to come to youth group, you know? And, and so you're, you're, most youth groups inevitably are going to have unbelieving kids there. So you still need to have that initial focus. So I think, I don't think it's an either or, but I would want to know kind of like what, what's your emphasis here? I think that would shape maybe how you'd respond to this person. Either way, if this, you say this person is a believer, I think, um, which, okay. So basically he's making a confession, says he loves Jesus. He's engaged. You're not quite sure if he's totally redeemed. Like, I mean, with, a lot of youth across the board. I, when do you really know if they've made that long-term commitment? Um, so, uh, but if he's making that confession, the main thing I would want is that he would have a firm understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, that the, the impossible cost of following Jesus, the, the countercultural, uncomfortable, counterintuitive, illogical, seemingly impossible confession that he's making, that I want to follow this Savior who 
called his followers to die to themselves, to pick up their cross, to count the cost, to, to not make a hasty decision to want to follow Jesus, who, who want to follow him to the grave in the midst of pain and difficulty and suffering and, and self-denial, where, where it's in that place of self-denial and picking up your cross where you find otherworldly, unspeakable, unexpected joy and, and uncanny fulfillment in life. Like, I would want that, that really rich, very challenging, and in many ways divisive message of following Jesus to be, to be made very clear uh, to this person so, so that he can get him to a place where, where he has a very realistic and honest perspective on what it means to follow Jesus. Oh, and by the way, I would want to make sure every single kid in the youth group has that perspective. So... Um, and again, see, I don't know anything about your youth group, but if youth group is just a place to kind of gather and entertain and provide space for Christian kids to kind of get together and have some fun, that's a great start. Um, but I, a true encounter with Jesus is disruptive. It's uncomfortable. A genuine encounter with Jesus oftentimes is followed with the response of, oh, I don't want that. So vibrant, flourishing, well-populated youth groups sometimes make, make me a little nervous. I think that that might be a good place to start. That's not a bad thing. Maybe God is really working in their hearts, but I would want to make the radicality of the gospel publicly and clearly and constantly known. And again, so so just to reiterate again, I am not talking about offering a really challenging gospel to all the gay kids in the youth group. That is not what I said. That is not at all what I would advise. I would, I would want to make every sexually broken kid in that room, which is every kid in that room, very aware of the high calling of following Jesus, the, the, the dangerous nature of Christian discipleship, the, the, the pain and suffering that often comes with following Jesus who embodied pain and suffering. So that would, that would be one thing I would want to, um, I like to, I like to think in terms of discipleship, in ter- well, in terms of like a public aspect of discipleship and a private aspect of discipleship. So with this conversation, I would want to be very public with the, the God's desire for sexual integrity gay or straight or bi or trans doesn't matter. Like there is a high standard and high calling for sexual integrity that God calls all people to those who want to follow Jesus at some point or another are going to be faced with this. Wow. This Christian thing is really difficult, especially when it comes to sexual integrity. I'm avoiding the term sexual purity because I think that has a lot of kind of baggage in Christianity, but I think we can all agree that sexual integrity, following God's design for sexual expression and our sexuality, like that is something we are all called to at least ask, what is God's design and intention for that? And, you know, you're, you, you the youth pastor asking this question, uh, obviously has a certain standard of that, which would say same-sex sexual relationships are not uh, part of God's design. So I, I would want to make that publicly. Again, don't pick on gay people. Don't pick on LGBT people. 
um, just promote sexual integrity to all of the people in that room, not as a means of salvation or a means of getting God's favor or whatever, but as a, a realistic articulation of what it means, part of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. So publicly, I'd want to make that clear. Privately, it, given the situation that you described, I think it probably would be good to have a uh, private conversation uh, with this individual where, where you can communicate to him with tons of compassion and care and sensitivity and, and, and love and grace and honesty and truthfulness um, and, you know, a clear understanding of what, what the Bible says. I communicate to him on a, on a private, eye-to-eye, one-to-one loving level of, hey, we're so, I'm so thankful you're here, you're you're not, I'm not just thinking where you're here, like you're, you're a gift to this group, like you bring gifts to this group um, that we value immensely. Uh, but I've, you know, I've, I've heard you say some things or seen you say some things. I just want to be clear. I want to be honest with you because it would be deceitful for me not to tell you what I believe and what this youth group believes about uh, sexuality and, and marriage and, and all that comes with that. Um, so let me, let me just, I just want to tell you out of love and honesty, here's what we believe. And, um, and this is what I would expect for those who name the name of Jesus in this youth group. But again, see, this brings us back to the missional versus discipleship. If it's just kind of a missional, more of a missional focused group, then your sort of standards for right living are probably going to be really low because you're just trying to introduce Jesus to people and let them kind of maybe figure it out from there. And you don't want to push people away who may not know Jesus, but who need to encounter Jesus, you know, um, maybe for the first time. Uh, so I think you do need to, I, I think asking that question, what is my philosophy of ministry is, is super important because that, that will be kind of the, the grid through which you, um, you view the situation. Uh, at the end of the day, I like to say swim in a tension of uh, grace and truth. Okay, next question. What are my thoughts on Pope Francis's response to this distraught boy? And the questioner gives me a link to uh, metro.co.uk dated April 20th, where uh, the title is something like The Pope Comforts a Boy with Dead Father Who Was an Atheist or something like that. And I clicked on the link took me to an article that um, was filled with typos, by the way, which always makes me nervous when an article is filled with tons of typos. And there was a little video clip in that article, about a two and a half minute video clip of Pope Francis sitting in a, kind of an outside area. He's got people coming up to talk to him through, through a microphone. And this little boy comes up and is just sitting there. He can't talk, can't talk. He's, you know, just, you know, cat has his tongue and, and, and all of a sudden he starts crying and then the Pope, very, it's a, such a cool video. He, he says, you know, tell him to come up here. So the boy comes up, he still can't talk. And then he whispers into the Pope's ear something. And then um, the Pope responds. You don't really hear anything. Now, this is what makes me nervous. We're, we're kind of left up to the reporter to reveal what the boy said to the Pope and what the Pope said to the boy in the video itself. And, and maybe... I, maybe the Pope gave an interview after where he talked about what he said. I didn't, I didn't see anything where I actually, actually saw 
exactly what the Pope said from the Pope's mouth, nor did I say anything with the, where I can see what the boy was saying. Plus it was in a different language that I don't know. So, um, so, uh, we are left up to, I think some, some, um, uh, editorial honesty here for, from w- with the journalist to understand what, what's going on. But okay. So according to the article, the Pope, the, the, the boy asked, um, if his father who died and who was an atheist, if, if he, was uh, in heaven. And the Pope answered, and according to the reporter, something like, yes, he's in heaven, whatever. But even in the quotes within the article, the quotes that the reporter says, this is what the Pope said, he didn't quite say that. He came really close in the article. It said, um, it recorded the Pope is saying, if that man was able to make his children like that, then it's true. He was a good man. Not super clear exactly what he means there, but this is, again, the, the reporter summarizing the Pope's word, words, or not summarizing, but quoting. That man did not have the gift of faith. He wasn't a believer, but he had his children baptized. He had a good heart, the Pope said, according to the article. Describing Emmanuel, Emmanuel's the boy, Emmanuel's father, he said, do you think God would be able to leave him far from himself? Does God abandon his children when they are good? The children in the crowd responded, no. And the Pope then told Emmanuel, there, Emmanuel, that is the answer. God surely was proud of your father. We didn't quite say he was in heaven. Um, It does seem like he's, you know, trying to reassure this kid who's bawling, you know, about about, uh, that his father's in good hands or however you want to put it, that God was proud of his father, that his father's a good man. I mean, this, honestly, when I watched this and read it, it just seems like one of those awkward pastoral moments, you know, where somebody asks you, a, uh, they're, they're just distraught. They ask you some theological question. They want some reassurance. And yet, theologically, you can't really give them the reassurance you want because it may, it's not true. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's not the time or place to kind of go into a full a to Z, like theological articulation of, of the afterlife or the nature of hell or whatever, um, it's anybody who's been a pastor has, has been in these situations where there's just, there's a time and place for this kind of conversation. And sometimes that time or place is not now when the person is distraught and asking the question. So I, I mean, I want to, I want to, I want to respond somewhere in between, not in between, but, but being both, as I said in my last question, both gracious and truthful I don't want to lie. I don't want to give false assurance. But you also, again, there's a time and a place for clear, you know, theological reasoning. And, and, and there's some pastoral moments when this is not really the moment to, to just give a very insensitive and unnecessary theological answer. So I, in situations like this, my recommendation is to go to the Genesis 18 passage not, you don't actually literally need to go to the passage, but that, that statement where I believe it's the angel of the Lord says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Like in a sense, I don't, and this is as theologically true as it gets. Like my hope is not in making sure that this person is in heaven or making sure this person's saved or this person can't be in hell. Like, oh my gosh, my faith's going to be destroyed. If you tell me this person's in hell, like that's, not Christianity. Like my faith is not in me making sure that all the people go to the right place and, 
God forbid, God would make a decision that, that would, you know, uh, make me really sad. Like, that's not Christianity. That's a shaky foundation. I want to always push people back to trusting in God. Don't trust in knowing where somebody is or isn't in the afterlife. Put your trust in the fact that God is good. Do you believe God is good? Yes, I believe God is good. Do you believe that he will do, um, he will execute justice in the most perfect way? That he will not, that he is incapable of doing something bad, of doing something unjust according to his standard. Like, that's where I want people's hope. I want their hope to be in God, not in, you know, uh, having whatever thing they're going through to be massaged or every question they have to be answered according to their, you know, uh, what they can handle in that moment. I want them to be thrown, throw themselves upon God. That is both pastorally and truthfully where their hope needs to be. So, if I was in a situation, I would, I would say, you know, do you believe that God is good? The Bible says God is good. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. Do you believe God is incapable? Maybe you don't want to say it. Maybe, uh, do you believe God will always do what is right? He's incapable of doing wrong. Yes, yes, I believe that. Then, then your father is in good hands. He's with God who will always do what is right. And, and leave it at that. I mean, that, I think that it's, it steers the focus away from trying to give some false assurance to a, um, you know, a child who lost his father who's an atheist. I mean, I, yeah, I have a hard time saying an atheist is in heaven. If atheism gets you to heaven, then then I need to really revisit my entire, you know, religion. So next question, what are the foundations of the faith? Is Calvinism one of them? Um, <clears throat> quick answer, no, Calvinism is not one of them. And I say that as one who is, eh, kind of Calvinistic with several footnotes and caveats. So this questioner says, uh, Word of Life, um, you, you would t- you, you've been a student at Word of Life Bible Institute. I believe that's in the state of New York and uh, several campuses around, around the world. Um, I've had friends that have been to Word of Life, have had uh, really good experiences. In fact, my, my, uh, I believe my brother-in-law, uh, who teaches in Israel, t- also teaches at a Word of Life uh, school uh, in Europe somewhere. I want to I say it's Hungary. I don't know. Not that the school is hungry, but it's in the country of, of Hungary. And uh, so you say you you've, uh, have been a student at Word of Life Bible Institute, and they hold to a two to four point Calvinism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that aside for those of you who don't know what those points are. It's not really super important right now. So, But they hold to a two to four point Calvinism, a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial eschatology, a dispensational hermeneutic, um, and beginning my theological journey... Well, you began your theological journey with a, and you say, I quote, a very Southern Baptist theology. I don't know if that means like very Southern or very Baptist or very Southern Baptist, whatever, but that's, I found that to be funny. Um, I was very unaware of diversity in theological thought because of the the bubble nature of the Bible Institute culture. And I was convinced without much research that everything I taught was true as I've continued to listen to your podcasts and other Reformed speakers and have read scriptures for myself, I have come to disagree with many points that I was taught. Now, you say, many of my peers would say that other theological systems would lead someone to not really be a born-again believer. These would include Arminianism, <laughs> Universalism, and even some charismatic theology. So let me 
say, um, yeah, your friends are wrong. Um, so you're, and, and it seems like you don't even believe that anymore and you're right. They're wrong. It's just the way it is. So you go on to say, this doesn't sit well with me. Good. doesn't sit well with my, me either. I believe there is beauty in theological diversity. And I'm sure that once I get to heaven, the Lord will reveal how wrong many of my beliefs are. That's a great perspective. Uh, this leads to my question. What do you believe are the foundations of the faith? Okay. So when we talk about what are the foundations of the faith, I think we need to make several distinctions here. Number one, a distinction between one's individual salvation, like what is, what is the basic necessity for becoming a Christian, like getting saved? So that's, that's what, what are the things I need to believe or do or say or whatever that, that for my personal individual salvation, what are the, the basics for, for that happening? Uh, but another thing to think about is what are the basics for what I call the architecture of the Christian faith? So there's certain things that are important for you to believe to become a Christian. There's also other things that are just crucial to the architecture of the Christian faith, whether you know them or not. For instance, I would put the Trinity in the, in this, in this category that I don't, uh, I might get some emails for this. That's fine. Um, but, um, I, uh, I, I don't think that the, I think the Trinity is crucial to the architecture of the Christian faith because part of that architecture, part of what makes Christianity, Christianity is we are monotheists. We believe in one God. And yet we also have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Especially, I mean, the, the, the Holy Spirit can be tricky. That's a little more difficult to sort out. Is it a power emanating from God? Is it a separate personality, part of the triune God? Now, obviously, it should be obvious. I believe it is a personality, part of the triune God. But that's, uh, biblically, it's a little, it's, it, you have to work a little harder to get there. But clearly, Jesus is divine and human. And clearly, Jesus worships the Father as divine. So you, you have, if I can say, at the very basic level, plurality within that monotheistic belief. Now, let me, ask, let me ask you a question. Does every individual Christian need to understand that to be saved? Let that linger for a little bit, because the answer is kind of no. I don't think the thief on the cross would be able to articulate a really sound Trinitarian theology. I don't think most early Christians in the first century would have had a full-blown, clear articulation of the Trinity. I don't think most Christians in America (laughs) would be able to articulate a Trinitarian theology in a way that would satisfy the sort of creedal formulations of the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries um, of Christianity. Okay, so I, as far as an, ind, an individual getting saved, um, I don't think they need to be able to understand the full understanding or even a basic understanding, really, of the Trinity. They confess Jesus as Lord, believe in their heart, God raised them from the dead, and you know, they're saved. Like, you don't, you don't have clear articulations of the Trinity being, being promoted as sort of the, the necessary thing you must believe in in order to get saved. At the same time, when you step back and look at the architecture of the Christian faith, understanding the Trinity is really important for, for that. So um, do you need to understand um, uh, all the ins and outs of inspiration and biblical authority? Do you need to understand all the 
the ins and outs of the workings of, let's just say, the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit? Do you need to understand the doctrine of justification by faith through grace alone? Well, for the architecture of the Christian faith, yeah, biblical authority is pretty important. Inspiration, um, justification by faith. But as N.T. Wright said, you're saved by faith or you're justified by faith. You're not justified by believing in justification by faith. It's a it's a brilliant line that's got him in hot water. I think he's dead on. Like there's a difference between saying a doctrine is important for the Christian faith and, oh, by the way, you also need to have a, a really clear uh, formulated understanding of that doctrine in order for you as an individual to be saved. So that's one distinction I'd want to make between a cri- necessary criteria for becoming a Christian as, a, as an individual versus aspects or beliefs about Christianity that are crucial for the architecture of the Christian faith as an objective reality, as a religion out there. I also want to make a distinction as you talk about, you know, what's cru- what are the foundations of the faith? I want to make a distinction between orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, right behavior. See, oftentimes we get caught up on what are the necessary things to believe to be saved, and, and those are important questions. But sometimes we forget that when the Bible talks about salvation or, or when it threatens when it warns people to not fall away, oftentimes it talks about obedience or lack thereof. You know, when it, for instance, in um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, it talks about these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And who are the types of people that won't inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the sexually immoral, the, the greedy, the slanderous, like it talks about behavioral things that will exclude somebody from the kingdom of God. In, in the parable of the, of the sower in, in the Luke, uh, gosh, Luke 6, Luke 7, something like that, and, and in Matthew uh, 13, it talks about the, the, the seed, the good seed falling upon good ground are the ones who, who uh, grow up and persevere. And, and there's a, this idea of the one who is genuinely saved will demonstrate an ongoing life of faithfulness and repentance and belief, not just signing off on some on some creed. So, but again, um, in order to rightly behave, in order to respond to God with the proper obedience, you have to have some basic understanding of who it is you're even responding to. Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? How does this work together? What is salvation? Um, so I'm not, I, I, uh, I don't want to I don't want to clean up the messiness here. I want to almost just expose the messiness that we need to ask questions about individual salvation versus the architecture of the Christian faith. We need to talk about orthopraxy versus orthodoxy. So in terms of, yeah, individual salvation, I think there is this emphasis on allegiance to Christ, which is what I think faith in Jesus is. I like the idea of allegiance because biblical faith, like the Greek word pistis, it is one of those uh, uh, seminary. Uh, yeah, we, I was I was the goofball in the back when the, whenever the teacher would say pistis, he said pistis. Um, uh, the pistis is the Greek word for faith. Well, the Greek word pistis is is a little bit more well rounded, a little bit more involved, a little more a little bit more complex and in in depth than than the English word faith. And so I like the word because faith. Sometimes we just think, oh, it's just intellectual assent. Well, biblical faith is a little more than that, especially the Hebrew equivalent, emunah, which is often translated faith or faithfulness. You see, faithfulness has to do with not just intellectual assent, but it involves like right response, right living. And I think that 
the biblical concept of faith in Jesus Christ, it's not, see, you don't want to spill over into works like, oh, so you're just saying you, it's, it's, it's your obedience that in Jesus is what gets you saved. Well, well, no, but it's more than just intellectual assent. And this is where I like the idea of allegiance, giving your allegiance to Jesus, I think is hands down the fundamental necessary thing for salvation. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. I mean, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from your dead and you'll be saved. Um, and even there, when, when the Bible talks about confession, it's more than just a verbal confession. It is more of a, I'm giving, I'm confessing in the sense that I'm giving my allegiance to him as Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and, and heart belief or allegiance issues in, in responsive behavior. If, if it's a true heart response. So, um, in terms, so that that's, uh, in terms of orthopraxy, Allegiance to Jesus, absolutely necessary, which, which, which necessitates or assumes some basic, basic knowledge of who Jesus is and was. Um, as far as orthodox or orthodoxy, like what are some of the beliefs that, that are necessary for that's the basic necessity of salvation? I would say that Jesus is the Messiah. You can say Holy One of Israel, the Christ, whatever, um, that he is the only way to salvation. Um, that by giving your allegiance or believing in him, you are saved. Uh, uh, some basic understanding of his death and resurrection. It's hard to say somebody can get saved without understanding and believing in the resurrection of Jesus. The First uh, Corinthians 15 makes that really central. Um, I would also say, you know, monotheism and the Trinity um, – are uh, following close behind. I'm not saying that for an individual to be saved, they must have a full articulation of the Trinity. This is more the architecture of the Christian faith, that we are monotheists, and yet there is plurality within within the divinity. So modern systems like pre-mill, ah-mill, charismatic gifts, and Calvinism versus Arminianism, no, these, sorry, these are not part of the foundations of the faith. Otherwise, there's millions of Christians that are screwed because global Christianity, historic Christianity has not made these very significant or central. And and it's really just modern Western people who have these modern day systems that that, that may be good, that maybe they're good organizing systems that help us understand scripture. Maybe some are better than the others, but to say that these are sort of fundamental to salvation, I mean, I think that just absolutely flies in the face of what Paul said was the essentials of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. It flies in the face of what the apostles preached when they preached the gospel throughout the book of Acts. They did not preach a pre-trib rapture view of um, of salvation. So uh, yes, going back to your question, uh, people who say that uh, these other, other, those other theological systems could, could threaten you from losing your born-again believing status, that's absolutely ridiculous. And p- part of the reason, part of the, the things that are wrong with modern-day American Christianity. So thanks for listening, folks. Again, this is Theology in the Raw. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month, five bucks a month, and you will get a monthly Patreon-only podcast, which I'm about to record here in the next couple of days for my uh, supporters uh, for the month of June. So five bucks a month, or you can support higher 
better than that. If you have uh, more money, you can give me more money. That'd be great. Um, also, check out the YouTube version of the show. And if you're watching on YouTube, check out the podcast version through iTunes. Thanks for listening to Theology of the Rock.